Uh, last week was the second Sunday after Easter, and every second Sunday we read about uh, Thomas and his refusal to believe that Jesus had risen until he was an eyewitness and could touch him and feel him and see his wounds and so forth. So the themes that you could preach about, which I did on the second Sunday, are the bodily resurrection and the evidence for that and all of the scholarship that has gone on in the last 35 years about this. And I mentioned to you that in, in, uh, when I was in seminary, nobody believed in the empty tomb that taught me New Testament. Nobody believed in the bodily resurrection. And now it's flipped. So uh, most people would say 75% of the New Testament scholarly community in Europe and in this country, uh, mainly when I say Europe, England, do believe there is sound historical evidence for the bodily resurrection. And th these are people who are skeptical, have always been skeptical. And those who, of course, have always uh, believed in the bodily resurrection remain that way. So instead of 75-25 the other way, it's 75-25 flipped now. So uh, pay your money and take your choice. But um, I read a commentary on John's Gospel about three years ago where the... Uh, Author John Ashton was talking about John's gospel, and he had an entire, the, almost half of the book at the beginning was about Rudolf Bultmann's magisterial commentary on the gospel according to St. John, and he said the learning in this book is unbelievable, and yet he was almost completely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so, what goes around comes around. So we talked about that, and we talked about the gift of the Spirit, which Jesus bestows on the apostles, and the power of the keys, when he breathes on them and gives them the power to retain sins or to forgive sins, the church, the power to do that. So that's in last week's gospel. And this week, I want to just refer us back, as I do every, every Sunday in Eastertide, to the fourfold shape of the liturgy which governs, in one sense, what it is we believe. You know, the law of prayer is the law of belief. What we pray, we believe. So it's not glib to say, uh, what do Episcopalians believe? Come to the liturgy and you will, you'll find out uh, moving forward. So we have today, in the three readings, all four parts. The presence of the light of Christ, the rehearsal of the history of salvation, the importance and centrality of the sacraments, mainly baptism and the Holy Eucharist, because the gospel really is about the Eucharist and about the liturgy and about how Jesus comes to us on a regular basis present in the liturgy, in the Eucharist. So we'll talk a little bit about that. And remembering, too, that Father Keating says that Easter is about three great theological ideas or themes, God's light, God's life, and God's love. So we understand this in some way in today's readings. From Acts, we have um, part of the first charismatic speech given by Peter. You can amaze your friends <laughs> if you put on ice the word kerygma or charismatic because it means the preaching, primitive preaching of the gospel. And that's what we hear in the book of Acts today from Peter. And we hear part of that. And we hear what he has to say 
about uh, the great sweep of the history of salvation and the Christ event and all of the things that the church is now beginning to say, what then must we do? Last week I mentioned, by the way, that uh, E.P. Sanders, who's a New Testament scholar, famous, uh, said that when you read the resurrection stories in the Bible, in the New Testament, you, you begin to see that the people who were writing them down began to realize they simply did not possess the vocabulary to describe this. And it is equally true that it is not an uh, argument against the bodily resurrection to say that none of the accounts agree. In fact, them not agreeing is more of a test of their authenticity than otherwise. Because if it's really true that the church waited a while and then cooked the evidence, the stories would be far more consistent than they are now. And at least that has to be reckoned with uh, moving, moving forward. Or you could say, if you still remain skeptical, uh, wh why would they come to this conclusion as opposed to another one? So... Peter is talking about coming to grips with the resurrection. He's describing to the crowds uh, the Christ event and what it means. And there's a question, what is it that we must do? And he said, you must repent of your sins and be baptized and be part of the community of faith and be part of the, the uh, gathered, the baptized, whose vocation is to be God's people in the world and to discover how we always through our relational life and through our understanding of God present in history, that we become part of this enterprise. And this is how we think about it, and this is what we do. Reginald Fuller, uh, one of the great New Testament scholars in the 20th century, said, The resurrection made manifest what was true of the cross itself, that it was in fact the victory over human alienation and separation from God, over all that the New Testament means when it speaks of sin, the wrath of God, and death. Somebody asked Bart Ehrman, how many independent testimonies uh, are there of uh, the, the reality of the crucifixion? And he said, 11 that I can find. In, the ancient, in ancient history, if you get two you consider it now a victory and an affirmation that it is true. I mentioned Bart Ehrman because he's, he's an extremely competent New Testament scholar and te textual critic, and he's very popular because he's written a lot of books now for the popular reader. And so it's, uh, he's had a, a lot of influence and, and so on. So Peter's talking about the primitive preaching or, or is speaking about how they began to understand the Christ event and what it meant. And then in 1 Peter, the first epistle of Peter, we have what most biblical scholars believe is a, a early baptismal liturgy. So embedded in the text is um, our songs and canticles and so forth. This is another thing. I forget this stuff. You learn and then you forget it. Um, most of the uh, most of Jesus's audience, the people who followed him and heard him, were illiterate. They could not read. 
But because they were illiterate, they had a very high capacity to memorize things. Enormous. And so if they came to believe, as it said in, in last week's gospel, then they needed to have the means to communicate this to others. And so you can read the New Testament, particularly in the original languages, and see that there were little, you know, two-line of poetry that a person could memorize and tell somebody about that they would then be able to, because they couldn't read it, they'd speak to them about this. And the same is true in, in uh, 1 Peter when he says things about baptism that somebody could repeat who wasn't uh, able to read. And so that's important. And some of them have the rhythm and the cadence, not of Greek, but of Aramaic, which was the language that Jesus spoke most of the time. Although now it's a commonplace, not when I was in seminary, but now it's a commonplace that Jesus also spoke marketplace Greek, Koine Greek, the language of the marketplace. You get from Alexander the Great, who came down there a long time before, before Jesus. By the way, I mentioned this too, or maybe it was in Episcopalian 101. You know what the earliest written information we have about Alexander the Great? Have you heard of him? Alexander the Great? Alexander the Great lived in about 350 BCE. And the earliest information that we have uh, is 600 years later. Right? Now, in that, in that material, they mention that there were earlier contemporary writings about him. But we don't have them yet. We may have them someday but we don't have them. So the question is, how, is that history? What do you think? Part of the conversation in any case. So let's move quickly to the, to the um, reading from uh, Luke's Gospel. Well, let me preface it by saying this. When I first became an Episcopalian, and uh, subsequent to that, during, I guess, most of my ministry, people in the Episcopal Church who owe a bit in one kerfuffle or another uh, was concerned about matters of churchmanship, whether you were high church, low church, broad church, high and crazy, low and lazy, broad and hazy. <laughs> so... From the Anglo-Catholic side of things, which I got into and said, give me the clipboard, I'll sign. <laughs> the, uh, we, we were concerned about um, re-emphasizing the sacramental life in uh, the Episcopal Church and that the sacraments were important. I was equally taught that this tradition we call Anglicanism is both Catholic and reformed. So they're together. And we have to say that we uh, believe in, in the reformation of valuing of uh, the scriptures, of the word. So when we come to the liturgy on Sunday, we come to the uh, liturgy of the word at the beginning, and then we have the liturgy of the Eucharist and in the origins of this, 
the liturgy of the word really had uh, was redolent with um, Jewish worship tacked on to the Eucharistic liturgy. And so now it's a, a unity. In the Reformed churches, as time went on, there was a detach between the word and the sacrament. And so the word began now to be prominent. All you, uh, you can do is go into some of the old churches, even some old Anglican churches, and what you see when you look down the aisle is the pulpit. That the preacher went in and got up there with a tester on it and harangued you for a couple of hours and then you <laughs> were finished. Always beware if you come to a church when somebody has an hourglass and turns it over and is going to begin. <laughs> or the... Uh, the, the <laughs> The, the, the other warning is uh, when you see a guy or a woman take their watch off and put it here. Don't do that. I was at the commencement at Neshota House when, the year before I graduated, and the preacher was the then Bishop of Colorado, William Fry. And William Fry, unbeknownst to everybody, had had root canal therapy the day before, and he was full of opiates, and he had taken his watch off and was preaching, and about 48 or 50 minutes into this, one of the students' wives behind me said, you know, I don't think I can sit here for another minute. <laughs> and I was out loud. I mean, it was like, you know... Fry was unfazed and continued on for another 15 or 20. But anyway. So what, one of the great benefits of the liturgical renewal in all the churches now has been the bringing back together of these two things. So you're actually seeing uh, reformed Christians uh, emphasizing the sacramental life or talking about liturgy and things like this. When I first started in this enterprise, that was very uncommon, you know, we had Lutherans are a liturgical church, Episcopalians are a liturgical church, and of course the Roman Catholic Church is a liturgical church, and they had this connection to some degree uh, in various ways. But coming together with the word and the sacrament is very important, and that's an advance. And the reason I mentioned it in, in uh, introduction to Luke's gospel is that we have one of the best uh, resurrection appearances, in my view, in the Bible, in the New Testament, and uh, it is it is just wonderful. And it's the story of two disciples walking to a place called Emmaus. I did, looked up. Some people don't know if Emmaus ever existed. It may have been another place and has another name, at least now. But they were walking towards Emmaus and talking, had the blues because Jesus had been crucified and had died and so forth, and they had begun to hear rumors that he had risen from the dead. And so they were talking about it, and they were joined by Jesus. But they did not recognize him. And this is a feature of some of the, the resurrection accounts. In John's Gospel, you see this too. Uh, the most notable resurrection appearance in John is when he's on the shore and all the apostles come in from fishing or come ashore and there's Jesus cooking and eating fish and offering them breakfast and it says they dare not look at him because they knew it was the Lord. 
So they didn't just say, Jesus, you know. <laughs> they, they didn't say anything until it finally occurred to them that he was the same but different. And that's an interesting thing in and of itself and, and, and what it might mean. So in this appearance, Jesus is talking with them and he finally says, you don't, don't you understand what's occurred here? And then he puts the whole sweep of the history of salvation right in front of him. And he explains to them why this had to be the way it is. And they continue on and they get to Emmaus and Jesus is continuing on and they, ple- they plead with him to stay. And they go into a place to eat And Jesus breaks the bread. And in the middle of breaking the bread, they realize who he is. Now, Luke's gospel was written in about 85. So this means that uh, we are beginning now to see a tradition in the church that Jesus is known to the people who follow him through the breaking of the bread in the Eucharist that it is an encounter with the risen Christ. An old book I read years and years ago by a Dominican named Edward Skillebex wrote a book called Christ, the Sacrament of the Encounter with God. And it was a book about the sacraments and what they were, encounters with the risen Lord. So they saw Jesus, and then he disappears. That's another feature in some of these appearances. He goes through doors, and he appears and then disappears and does many of those kinds of things. And so um, some of my professors who were smart said, well, what does that mean? And he said, I haven't the faintest idea. (laughs) Right? In any case, he does this. There's a great painting by Caravaggio where you see... Uh, this scene. Uh, it's, it's one of the great ones. So in, in the course of this, the question then becomes in this reading, when you start talking about it, is how is Christ present? How is Christ present to us in the liturgy? And Father Keating, Thomas Keating, would say Christ is present in the, in, at the Eucharist in five ways. Christ is present in the assembly. There's another, if you use that word among people who are in the know liturgically, they'll go, boy, you must have done some reading. Mm-hmm. The assembly. Christ is present in the proclamation of the, of the biblical witness. The reading of the the biblical readings, particularly the gospel. The third way that Christ is present is in the Eucharistic prayer, which some refer to, and you probably can experience this way, is someone in the the congregation as the long prayer. Okay? It's the prayer of consecration that the priest uh, proclaims uh, over the bread and the wine. That's number three. Number four is Christ is present in the bread and the wine. You know, we don't need to get into a big long thing about how that is unless you really want to sometime. But he's present in the bread and the wine. And then he's present in each of us as we receive it. So that we leave the church with filled with the spiritual food and drink. 
strengthened by it, and given the uh, uh, opportunity and the possibility to meet the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of us on a daily basis, empowered to be God's people in the world. So the light of God and the life of God are present in the written word and the preached word and the lived word, and they are present in the Eucharistic life, the life of thanksgiving, the receiving of the spiritual food and drink of the most holy sacrament of the altar, and then present in us as we go out and make a difference. Amen.